And yet, this is a man, we may know his name, but that many Christians don't know much about him. And so we're going to think about this testimony, and I trust that uh, our hearts will be thrilled as we think of the grace of God in the life of Augustine of Hippo. But we're going to begin by reading Romans chapter 13, and we're going to read the verses 11 through to 14, because these are the verses that he was saved through that brought him to a knowledge of Christ. Romans 13, verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Amen. We know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we consider this testimony of grace, and as we consider your word and what lessons we can learn, we pray you would touch all of our hearts. May the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen and amen. Why is it important to know something about the life of Augustine of Hippo? He is, without a doubt, one of the, the greatest Christians who ever lived. In fact, Benjamin Brackenridge Warfield, uh, one of the great uh, American theologians of the late 19th century, uh, he said that without Augustine of Hippo, there would not have been a Reformation. Now, that's an astonishing statement. Whenever you think that Augustine of Hippo lived over a thousand years before the Reformation, and yet he said without this man, there wouldn't have been anything left to reform. And that really is his chief contribution now, he, he was a man who had his faults. He was a man who had his errors. And one of the intriguing things about this man is that Protestant theologians look back to him with high esteem because of truths that he preserved, truths that he stood up for, particularly the truth of, of grace. That's why the title of the study tonight is Resting in Christ Alone. But likewise, Roman Catholicism also reveres the name of Augustine of Hippo. You see, Augustine of Hippo was born in the latter half of the fourth century. That's the 300s. He was born in around 360, and he died in the year 430. Now, that means he was a contemporary of St. Patrick, and that's the, the period we're talking about. Whenever you think of Irish history of that time, we know really very little about St. Patrick. All that we really know about St. Patrick is what's found in, in, in a couple of writings, and, and uh, those writings were preserved in a book that uh, is dated from the 8th century. And so it seems that there was very little written work uh, about Patrick during the days of Patrick. But Augustine of Hippo is very, very different. Uh, we have so much of what he himself has 
written. We also have his own personal testimony. We have all of his controversies because he was one of the great Christian leaders of that particular time. This was a period in church history when the church was changing. Apostasy was getting in. And so the the church was moving away from the early church, and there was many errors coming into the church, and eventually those errors would evolve the church into what we today call the Roman Catholic Church. And some of the errors that we associate with the Roman Catholic Church were errors that Augustine of Hippo also held. For example, he had views in relation to baptism. He certainly overemphasized baptism, and there's no doubt about that. And there are other aspects of his teaching too that we would not uh, agree with. But that being said, there was something he was crystal clear on, and this was the importance of grace and the gospel. And that comes through very clearly and very evidently where his testimony is concerned. Now, he lived in a changing world, a world that was changing rapidly. The Roman Empire had dominated church history, had dominated history. Yes, it dominated church history since the days of the apostles, but the, the Roman Empire dominated history for close to a thousand years. And Augustine lived in a period of freedom. Uh, the Roman Empire had nominally become a Christian empire. And so, where before Christians were being thrown to the wolves and to the lions and were suffering horrible persecutions, now Christians had freedom. So, he was in an era when the Christian church had freedom. But in the midst of those freedoms, the Christian church was departing from the faith. But the Roman Empire that had given Christianity freedom was in a state of flux. It was collapsing. Year after year, it was collapsing. It was a a world of war. It was a world of bloodshed. It was a world of great uncertainty. We think today we're living in a world of uncertainty, and we are. Well, he lived in a world of uncertainty, and he bore witness to Christ in the midst of that uncertainty. And so, there's much we can take from him uh, where where that is concerned as well. Uh, Now, Augustine of Hippo, one of the things that really makes him famous is this little book here. The Confessions of St. Augustine. The Confessions of St. Augustine was the first, what we would call, classic book in church history. And it is his testimony. He wrote his testimony. It it is a very moving testimony. It, It is a testimony that is told with great honesty. He tells about his own life. He tells about his life of sin. He tells about the sins of his heart. It is a prayer. It was a very unusual way to write a testimony. His testimony is a prayer to God. He's telling God the story of his life. And in so doing, he glorifies God. And let me just read the opening sentences, and you'll get a sense of the kind of man he was, his devotional spirit. Great art thou, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy power and thy wisdom infinite. And thee would man praise. Man, but a particle of thy creation. Man that bears about him his mortality. The witness of his sin. The witness that thou resisteth the proud. Yet would man praise thee. He, but a particle of thy creation. Thou awakest us to delight in thy praise. For thou madest us for thyself. And our heart is restless until it repose in thee. 
We're just particles of dust. That's all we are. But God has made us for himself. And these hearts of ours, they're restless until they rest in God. And those are amongst some of the most famous words that any Christian outside of the scriptures has ever written. Martin Luther said of Augustine that he was the greatest theologian outside of the Apostle Paul. And Calvin's view on the sovereignty of God and on predestination was fashioned by the writings of St. Augustine. So in terms of the Reformation, uh, it is he is a very important figure to think about and to consider. So let's just think about the life of this uh, very famous man to begin with. First of all, where on earth is Hippo? Where on earth is Hippo? Where, where is this place? We, we, we don't recognize it today. Well, Hippo was just ruins today. It's in North Africa. It's in Algeria. And we, we do not associate North Africa today with, with Christianity because after the days of Augustine, uh, you, you had the... the you had Islam, and that swept all the way across North Africa, and those are very Islamic countries today. But in the days of Augustine, North Africa was filled with Christians, filled with Christian churches. God had done a work in that area and in that region, and he would turn Hippo into the center of theological teaching in the Western world. And just think about those words, the Western world, because the church was divided between the West and the East. The Western world was Latin, and the Eastern world was, was Greek, and the Eastern church would become eventually what we call the Orthodox churches today, the Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. But the Latin church would be what would become known as the Roman Catholic church. And so he was situated here in Hippo, Algeria, in North Africa. Now, this man was born into a home. His mother, Monica, was a Christian. His father was not a Christian. He, he, he was a pagan. Although there's indications that later on he did come to faith. And so he was brought up in an abided home where his mother was saved and his father was not saved. And his mother, Monica, was a very devout lady, a very devout Christian lady, a woman of great piety and godliness who taught her sons, who taught her son the things of God. And Augustine had a, a very close bond with his mother. He, he said in his confessions, even as a boy, I had heard of eternal life promised to us through the humility of the Lord our God, who came down to visit us in our pride. The mother of my flesh was much perplexed, for with a heart pure in thy faith, she was always in deep travail for my eternal salvation. And there he tells something of how he learned of Christ. But yet his mother had this burden for a soul, and she would pray night and day for the salvation of her son. And so he was brought up to go to church. He was brought up to be familiar with God's Word, brought up to be familiar with the truths of God's Word. And we learned this morning about Martin Luther, how he grew up in a world of darkness. But over a thousand years before Martin Luther, this man, Augustine, didn't grow up in a world of darkness. 
It was a world that was familiar with the word of God and with the gospel and with the things of God. And yet, he would say that as a boy, he was already turning away from the truths that his mother taught him. He would talk about stealing from his parents. He would talk about the rebellious nature that he had. He would talk about the, the sin that was present in his life, both as a child and as a young teenager, as we would put it today. His Christian background, his Christian home, and his mother's prayers were not enough to save him. He had turned away from it all. And perhaps you're here tonight and and you have the privilege of having God's word. And people pray for you. And parents pray for you. You've been prayed for over the years. And yet still, you turn away. Because you have that rebellious, sinful spirit within you. That turns away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Augustine is associated with having this close-knit bond with his mother. And that really is the background to that portrait. It's the young man with his mother. But a large part of his life, he ignored everything his mother taught him. Very striking what he says here. I fell away from thee, O my God, and in my youth I wandered too far from thee, my true support. And I became myself a wasteland. He had lots of ability, lots of academic ability. In North Africa, he, he studied rhetoric. Rhetoric was the art of using words to persuade. And rhetoric would be of value as a teacher. It could also be of value in law. And so rhetoric was a discipline that had, that had lots of values. Uh, we, we use the word rhetoric differently today. When, when someone is talking and talking and talking, we say that, that's just a lot of rhetoric. But re rhetoric in those days, it, it wasn't empty words. It was words that meant something, words that were meaningful, words that were to engage people, words that were to persuade people. And so he had lots of ability, and so he was being schooled, and he was being trained, he was being educated, and he was a young man with lots of potential, but that potential was going to have no value unless he gave his life to the Lord, and he did not give his life to the Lord. He met up with a lady, and they started living together. As far as the church was concerned, he was not married, and he never considered himself to have been a married man. As far as the pagan society he was in were concerned he would have been married because they had no culture of treasuring what we today call Christian marriage. And Christian marriage is a wonderful institution where a couple make a covenant to each other in the presence of God and vow that they will be with one another until death do them part. But pagans didn't have any idea of that. And so he was brought up in a Christian background, yet he decided to live as a pagan. And he took to living with this lady. And they had a son together. And so, as life carried on, he would talk about him living for the lusts of this world. He would talk about him living for his own education, living for career. At times, he did go to church. 
At times there was an awakening kindled within him for the things of God, but there was never any desire to be committed to Jesus Christ. And then he was attracted by a group of people called mannequins. And the mannequins were what we today would call a false cult. They arose out of old Greek Gnosticism. It was a, a form of teaching that denied Jesus Christ as the resurrected Savior. That's all we really need to know. It was totally anti-Christian. And his mother was so alarmed when she realized that her son had fallen in with this group of people that she told him, you're not coming back to my home. You're not welcome in the family again because of the path you're going down to the destruction of your soul. He eventually got away, much to his mother's delight from this group of people, and he relocated to Milan as a teacher. By this stage, he was in his early 30s. And so he had spent all of his 20s, not really any interest in the things of God. And during all of those years, his mother was praying for him and praying for him and praying for him. But still, it didn't look as though he was going to come to Christ. And so he moved to the city of Milan as a teacher. And what did his mother, Monica, do? She followed him. She followed her son. And at that time, he appears to have made some sort of commitment that he would marry this lady that he had been so attached to, that he had been living with, and she moved back to North Africa. But he then took up with another lady. And so, morally, his life was just going from bad to worse. But while he was in Milan, he was exposed to the preaching of a man called Ambrose. The Ambrose was a famous Christian leader of this particular period. And Ambrose was very famous as an orator, and it was probably the fact that he was a great orator that brought Augustine to hear this preacher. He came to hear his power with words, but as he came to hear a man who had power with words, he himself experienced the power of God. And his heart became open to this heart was never opened before to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his need of a Savior. And so he was plummeted into what we would call conviction of sin. He became a seeking and a searching soul, going to God's house, attending to the ministry of God's Word, but still not closing in with Jesus Christ as his one and only Savior. And so he was in this position of sorrow, and he became, and here's a word for you, he became a catechumen. Catechumen was a practice the early church adopted from the earliest times, as far as we can work out, from indeed the first century. A catechumen, to put it crudely, was a half-Christian. Someone who wasn't yet saved, someone who wasn't yet a Christian, but someone who was inquiring. And this person would not have received communion, for example, but this person would have attended church and this person would have attended classes and it was a way to, to win the souls of those that were earnestly seeking the Lord. And so he put himself in this place where he was earnestly seeking the Lord. But you know, the world had many attractions. There was the lifestyle, the immoral lifestyle that he had been adopting. Uh, there was the career as a teacher and with the wealth that could have been attained through that, that 
was also attractive to him. Yet at the same time, there was a pull and there was a tug of the Spirit of God calling him to faith, and there were the devoted prayers of his dear mother, not letting go of God. And it said that by this time, she had been earnestly praying for Augustine for 17 years. And one day he was reading the Scriptures. He was in a garden. He was reading the Scriptures. As far as he was concerned, he, he, he was alone. And he was weeping, and he was shedding tears, and he was crying to God. Uh, he might know peace. How could he know peace? How could he know God? And then he heard a little child's voice. The little child's voice was reciting a rhyme, and there were two words that were repeated over and over. Go, read, go, read. Go read, go read. And he lifted the scriptures where he was reading Romans chapter 14 and the verse 12. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. And that's the kind of a life he was living. It was a worldly life. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. He knew he had to put off the life of sin and he had to embrace Christ. No turning back. It was a truly evangelical experience. A conversion experience that perhaps can be paralleled to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He said, for instantly as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty. And all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Suddenly this man had peace with God great Christian leader who did great things for God, yet he wasn't saved until he was a young man in his early 30s. And up until that point in time, he had spurned everything that he had been taught and had broken his mother's heart. He was baptized by, by Ambrose, and the baptism was a very public event, and it was a sign of his closing in with Christ, a public witness to what he had done in coming to the Savior. Now, Ambrose, or Augustine, after he became, after he became a Christian, he started writing. So he used all of this ability God had given to him in, in rhetoric and in words, and he, he started writing. And he would move back to Hippo, to what we call Algeria today in North Africa. And he, he never had any ambitions whatsoever for a public role within the church. But he was determined that he would object to pagan beliefs, he would stand up for Christian beliefs, and he would write works to that account. And it was a few years of doing that kind of thing. 
But he came to the attention of, of Christians, and, and they noted that here was a man that was gifted, and here is a man who knew God, and here is a man that, that we want in leadership. And so he was ordained as a presbyter, and the story of his ordination is striking because he did not want an office in the church. He did not want to be a preacher. He, he didn't want to, to lead the work of God. He, he, he wanted none of it. But he was in the congregation. The people actually forcibly, they took him. They said, you must do this work for this is of God. And so he was forced to yield and to follow the will of the people because the people were reflecting the mind of God. Now, he is not by no means the only great church leader to end up in the work of God unwillingly. In, in some ways, you're better being unwilling initially, but to be broken by God than to want something out of pride that you were never fitted for to begin with. And he certainly falls into the category of a man who felt that this work was not for him. But God brought him into the work that he might be a leader. And eventually, he was only a very few years uh, in office in the church before he was made the uh, Bishop of Hippo. So he became a, a leader of some standing now within the work of God. So here was a man who had moved. He had moved dramatically from a life of sin and terrible immorality now to be a leader within the church. Well, what about his mother? What actually happened to her? Well, she died just a few months after he became a Christian. She died in Italy. She, she didn't die in North Africa. She was buried in Italy. And um, she was only 56 years of age, and, and she died in his arms. And that was a, a terrible blow to him. But she died with peace because she saw her son won for Christ. Now, what was Augustine's great contribution to the future course of the church? He was involved in several controversies during his time as bishop, combating false teaching. He he wrote extensively in the doctrine of the Trinity, and he made a valuable contribution there. But it was his dealings with Pelagius that really causes him to stand out in the history of the church. Now, who was Pelagius? Pelagius was British. Not everything that ever came out of Britain was good. Uh, Pelagius was a, a British monk. And Pelagius, he had been teaching that there's no such thing as original sin. That, that man is born without sin. But sin is something that we choose. So we're not automatically sinners. We, we, we choose our sin. And because we choose to sin, we can also choose to be righteous, choose to be good, and choose to be Christian. And this was the teaching of Pelagius. Now, Augustine recognized 
the danger of all of this. And Pelagius' teachings were, were spreading. He, he visited Rome. Uh, uh, a friend of Pelagius was spreading this teaching in North Africa. So Augustine had to do something. He had to defend the truth of the gospel. Now, it is said that Pelagius was a very good person, a very upright person, a very moral person. He was the kind of person, if you were to meet Pelagius, you would say, now, that's a very good, fine, upstanding man. And he certainly was. Pelagius didn't have the life of sin that Augustine had. And it is said this was the problem. Because Pelagius was such a good person, he depended upon his goodness and upon his morality and upon his uprightness. He had not experienced the power of God's forgiveness for he had not yet admitted to the fact that he is a sinner. Whereas Augustine was a sinner, he knew he was a sinner. He knew he was lost. He knew his sin deserved hell. He knew he needed the grace of God. And so if there was a man in the Christian church at this time that was fitted to stand up to the false teachings of Pelagius, it was Augustine because he had experienced the forgiveness of the gospel. Now, Augustine spent 12 years writing about the teachings of Pelagius and standing up against the teachings of Pelagius in the church. Now, there are those that get very uncomfortable sometimes whenever the preacher refutes error. The preacher says, now, here's a form of teaching and it's wrong. Here's false doctrine. Here's something that's being taught and it's false and it's dangerous. This is why it's dangerous. This is why it's false. This is why we should say no to it. This is why we should reject it. This is what the Bible teaches. We live in a day and age when people don't like that kind of criticism of others. But this man, Augustine, he spent 12 years of his life constantly writing and speaking about what Pelagius represented because what Pelagius represented was a threat to the gospel itself. Now, the truth is, this controversy between Augustine and Pelagianism has been in the church ever since. It's been in the church ever since. Wherever you hear of a person and they say, I don't need to be born again. I don't need to be saved. I'm a good person. I go to my church and I take my communion and I've had my baptism and I've had all that. And I, I don't need this gospel that you're talking about. And there are, are people in Northern Ireland, and that's the kind of ministry they're subjected to. And that's what they really think, because they are not told that they're sinners before God going to hell and must be saved and born again. Their sins need to be covered with the blood of Christ. They must put their faith in Christ alone. If they don't, they'll be lost. Because they don't hear that kind of thing. They go for the kind of thing that Pelagius taught. And let's face it, Pelagianism is pretty attractive. Pretty attractive to be told sin is not what you are, sin is what you do. That's attractive because that gives you a choice. But whenever you're told sin is what you are and you have no choice, the child from the moment that child is born is conceived in sin, shaping in iniquity. That's a tough message because that immediately teaches us how vile we are in our hearts. Augustine had experienced the vileness of sin, the bitterness of sin. He'd experienced what sin does. And he knew there was only one thing that had rescued him, and that was the, the grace of God. And that's why he is called the doctor of grace, because he said grace alone. It's not what we do, it's what Christ has done for us that brings us to salvation. And you can see why 
B.B. Warfield, the great uh, theologian, said that without Augustine, there would have been no Reformation because what Augustine taught here lay at the very heart of Luther's Reformation. And that's why Luther held the teachings of Augustine in such high esteem, resting in Christ alone. Pelagianism exists today. It exists in Catholicism. It exists in Protestantism. It exists where the simplicity of the gospel is rejected. None of us are good enough, and we never will be good enough. Salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. That's the true value of learning about uh, Augustine. There was another work that he wrote that I just want to share with you tonight, and it's called The City of God. Now, he, he lived in a day when it seemed the very foundations of society were creaking. There was war everywhere. The great Roman Empire was, was collapsing, disintegrating before one's eyes. And there was false teaching creeping into the church. There were alarming days for God's people. Alarming days for society. In 410, Rome itself had collapsed. The Visigoths had swept through. In North Africa, the, the Vandals, the word vandalism, comes from a people called the Vandals, a very warlike people. They were fighting and plundering across North Africa. These were momentous days. There were days when it felt as if the world itself was coming to an end. And so in the midst of all of this, he, he wrote a work, a very famous work called the, the City of God. Just think about these words. The earthly city has made for herself, according to her heart's desire, false gods out of any sources at all, even out of human beings, that she might adore them with sacrifices. The heavenly one, on the other hand, living like a wayfarer in this world, makes no false gods for herself. On the contrary, she herself is made by the true God, that she may be herself a true sacrifice to him. And what he was really teaching was the earthly city will come and go. Earthly societies will come and go. Emperors will rise. And empires will wane. But the church will continue. The heavenly city will continue. The truths that are contained in the word of God will never decay and they will never die. And that was the full force of his work, the city of God. Truths that we do well to remember today. Yes, we, we pride ourselves in our, our nationalism. We pride ourselves in our Identity as far as this world is concerned, but we have an identity that's more to be treasured than a British identity because our home is in heaven. And the truths that we represent, the truths of the gospel will continue until the end of time and heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And that's why we need total commitment in these days to the cause of Jesus Christ. Augustine died when Hippo was under siege. The Vandals had besieged the city of Hippo. They, the siege went on for three months. It must be dreadful to be in a city that's under siege. There'll be short shortages, and of course, there'll be death. And he died in the midst of the siege. He died of natural causes. Perhaps the siege had hastened his death. He, he didn't die a violent death as such. But the story of his death is fascinating. I read from Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 
is the most famous of the penitential psalms. The penitential psalms are psalms of confession. He never lost sight, even as an old man, he never lost sight of the fact that he was a sinner in need of God's grace. And as he was lying in his deathbed, he, he got his friends and his brethren to write words from the penitential psalms on the walls around his bed so that as he lay, he could read God's word, words of confession, confessing his sins. He commanded that the shortest penitential psalms of David should be copied for him, and during the days of his sickness as he lay in bed, he would look at these sheets as they hung upon the wall and read them, and he wept freely and constantly. And it was in that spirit, as a man who was ever conscious of his sin, of his frailty, of his need of grace. As he left this world and entered the world that is to come. Writing in his meditations, he said, Oh, how wonderful, how beautiful and lovely are the dwellings of thy house, almighty God. I burn with longing to behold thy beauty in thy bridal chamber. O Jerusalem, holy city of God, dear bride of Christ, my heart loves thee. My soul has already long sighed for thy beauty. A man who knew God, indeed. But of course, he being dead, yet speaketh. Just a few very simple and very brief lessons that we take from this man's life. One regards prayer. He was a man of prayer, but his wife, his, his, his mother was a woman of prayer. And I think that Monica is an encouragement to us all to keep praying. And we all have prayers and longings in our hearts. Keep praying. Keep holding on to God. God answers prayer. The life, the testimony, the ministry of this man is proof. God answers prayer. There's things that we cannot change, and we may try to change them, and we will fail, but God can change what we cannot change. And he responds to the power of prayer. And let's just take that encouragement to heart. The other relates to conversion. Here was a converted man. Here was a man who had lived a life of sin, a man whom people may have looked to and thought, Augustine, look at the life he has lived. He's not going to turn back yet. And yet God intervened. And God saved him. Conversion. You know, conversion is a moment in one's life when the individual is born again and turns from darkness to light. I wonder if you've been converted. Have you had that second birthday? Do you know Christ is your Savior? The other lesson concerns grace. The power of grace. Grace to forgive. The grace of God in saving the deepest died sinner. The grace of God in giving to us what we do not deserve. Grace. Tis a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Oh, the power of God's grace. And he stood up for that grace. And whenever he saw a man like Pelagius undermining the grace of God and saying, we can work our way to heaven, he stood up for grace. Take away grace from the gospel. We have no gospel. And the other concerns is influence. Isn't it remarkable that a man who died in the year 430 AD, a man who lived in a Christian community, which after a few years, that community would just disappear. The church in North Africa would just disappear. The sword of Muhammad swept through. It would just vanish. 
And yet the truth that this man preached in North Africa continues. And we're talking about his ministry. We're talking about his life story. We're talking about his message tonight. There was an influence that lingered, that lasted. An influence that was felt even at the time of the Reformation, over a thousand years later. Oh, how important it is that we hand on a gospel legacy to the next generation that they may have it to hand on to their next generation. That the cause of the gospel will not be lost from this area. That's a challenge we all should take to heart. And I leave you with Augustine's most famous words, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Are you resting on Christ tonight? Let's pray. Father in heaven, write your word upon our hearts. And write these truths upon our souls for Christ's sake. Amen. And let's sing just a couple of verses of this closing hymn together. I think there only is three verses in this hymn, so we'll sing it all. Blessed be the fountain of blood to a world of sinners revealed. Blessed be the dear Son of God. Only by his stripes are we healed. Let's stand.
Father, part us from this place with thy blessing. Keep thy hand upon us through the course of this week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our abiding portion now and evermore. Amen.